Welcome once again to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me remotely in her socially distant home is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I hope that you're having a very blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here on your favorite Catholic radio station each week at this time. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or find us on your favorite podcast app. In today's episode, we tackle an important topic and speak with a real great leader whose work is helping women and men break free from sexual exploitation. And for our listeners out there, this is going to be at least a PG-13 related conversation. So if you've got families or young kids listening, you might want to either uh, monitor that or listen again when we put this out for the podcast. So just a heads up and a warning about that. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about a recent phone conversation between Catholic education leaders and President Trump. And finally, stick around for the bricklayer where we talk about how there are a few days left to observe Mary's month, the month of May, and some prayer opportunities for you during this month of Mary. We're blessed on the show today to have Terry Ferlitti. She is CEO of Breaking Free, an organization that helps hundreds of women and others escape systems of prostitution and sexual exploitation. And they also directly serve the people who've been impacted by human trafficking and prostitution through advocacy, housing, education, and immediate action. Terry is a great leader, has been awarded uh, with such things as women who make an impact in Minnesota. Uh, We're blessed for uh, her work and blessed by her work and grateful to have her on the show today. Welcome, Terry, to the Bridge Builder. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Can you say a little bit more about Breaking Free, its mission, and how you became involved? Yeah, we are an organization that was founded in 1996 by Benita Carter, uh, and she saw a need for women that were in their life, but also at that time, there wasn't any program available for those to get housing, to get permanent supportive housing, or to get off the streets. There were a lot of programs where you could talk about issues, things like that, and certainly begin your healing journey, but there weren't housing programs, and that's one of the greatest barriers into getting out of the life. So Breaking Free started our housing program in St. Paul, and it's grown and grown, and today we have two 18-unit apartment buildings where we serve 34 families. We also work with St. Paul Public Housing, and we have a number of Section 8 vouchers that we have been able to get our clients, and then we provide advocacy and case management. We also work with an organization called Hearth Connection. So we have another 10 families where we support them. So there's about 54 families that we work with. But regardless, whoever comes through our doors, we work with them on establishing some sort of safety plan. Because right now in the community, we have several folks that are homeless, that are living on the streets, that are living in tents underneath bridges in some of the encampments. It's really difficult to navigate housing and availability with some of our background, some of our lack of social skills, and just the economy the way it is. So housing is one of our big priorities, But we're also a survivor-led organization. Most of the folks that work at Breaking Free have been in the life. So it's easy to relate to our clients that come in 
and we can work with them and help them. They come up with their healing process, but we help guide them based on our experiences. And we provide what we call Sisters of Survival, which is our primary support group, where we dissect prostitution and human trafficking for what it is. You might not believe this or not. It sounds a little crazy, but most of the people that come to Breaking Free don't know that they were involved in prostitution, meaning that, you know, they know that they've been exploited in one way or another and that they're in the life. But I'll ask them, you know, what brought you here? Well, you know, my my boyfriend's um, cousin comes into town every four or five months and we hook up. And he pays our rent. That's not prostitution. Well, that's the epitome of prostitution. So because our culture has normalized sex and has normalized so much of the behavior that is involved in the power and control of pimps and perpetrators, that folks just don't realize that that's exactly what exploitation is. Or another dynamic that we work with our folks on is very common. It's called the lover boy strategy, where somebody would approach somebody. And generally speaking, I'm going to say for myself, I have had depression and anxiety and was raped when I was 15 years old by a boss. So I already had some pre-existing conditions. And then you find many of us have an unmet need, a single parent trying to raise us or, or no parent at all. Or just people that aren't there during those years where we're developing in our teenage years. So you've got an unmet need. You've got a vulnerability. Someone comes around with a false promise. I'm going to take care of you. I'm the answer to your dreams. Come with me and we're going to live that white picket fence or, you know, whatever life. And that, that certainly is the door to the power and control, to the recruitment, to the grooming and to the enslavement. It's very interesting work. It's um, very sad. Every day there's new folks that come in with new stories just when you thought you've heard it all. Prostitution is alive and well in Minnesota. And by well, I mean there's plenty of it. Yeah, say, Um, say a little bit more about how extensive sex trafficking is in Minnesota. Sometimes things are they're not seen or covered in the news regularly. They're out of sight, out of mind. Okay, I'm going to say Minnesota is not different than some of the other bigger cities. Atlanta, we're certainly not as big as Chicago, but we are very big. Every big city in America has a lot of prostitution. So I'm going to say that right now. A lot of folks feel that Minnesota has that gateway from Duluth from the harbors, and we certainly have in the past. We know a lot of folks, I know personally, a couple of very good friends that were trafficked on the ships in Duluth. We have an unprotected border in the north. We have easy access to 94 and to 35W, which brings us to Milwaukee, Madison, Chicago, Des Moines, very quickly. And so we do see a lot of traffic between those cities. As far as numbers go, well, I just want to tell you that All of my sisters and brothers that run shelters and service providers that are in the Twin Cities are all at capacity. Hmm. Everybody's at capacity. They're they're filled, including our emergency shelters. 
So that tells you that there's a lot of domestic abuse right now, especially during COVID. I know I'm not talking about domestic right now, and I'm certainly not an expert, but I just want to tell you, you can imagine being home for 45 days now or however long it's been with your abuser. And they're getting sick and tired of being at home and all those stressors are existing. We're seeing a lot of mental health, a lot of suicide ideology. In fact, we had one suicide last week. Um, It's tough. And in the sex trafficking world, a lot more. In the very beginning, we saw and heard that it dwindled for very, very, very short time. But who knows? You know, that's just the folks that we talked to. So it may have been bigger somewhere else, but it dwindled for a little bit. I wouldn't exactly say that the men who purchase sex are uh, germ germophobes. Mm-hmm. Terry, can you say a little bit about the the way in which women come to breaking free and come to shelters? How do they get out of that uh, life or escape their abusers and come into a, diff- a sheltering context or to work with breaking free? First of all, many of our women, it, it takes more than once to get out of the life. The average number of times it takes a uh, victim to get out of a domestic abuse situation is seven. So you can imagine what it would be for people in the life of prostitution. So some people have been here more than once. Other times it's treatment centers. But we're working really closely and have a relationship with Minnesota Teen Challenge right now where we're coming in and we're talking to folks that have been addicted about trafficking because so often that's never brought up. People go to treatment and they go to treatment over and over and over and over, but they're not getting to the root of what the problem was. I was sexually molested when I was five or six, or my father did this, or my uncle, or whatever. You have got to address that. You've got to address that trauma. And so that's what we're doing. That has historically not been done very well for years in treatment centers. So we're working and and reaching out to um, talk to those folks. So we're getting a lot of new referrals that way. We get a lot, we go to, we do an extensive amount of outreach. We are on the streets all the time by the bus stations in South Minneapolis. We know that the Native American community is a very, very high target. And per capita has the most abuse of all ethnicities. So we are working in those with missing and murdered Indigenous women and and MIWRC and Andai Young and other organizations to try to get out there and reach that community. The, there's a lot of uh, folks that travel the the transit system, and then we go to the camps, the homeless camps. There's a lot of prostitution that's done in the homeless camps, especially when nobody has any money. There's a lot of trade for things. So we go there. We talk to folks. We provide hygiene. We also have a drop-in center. So this is how we get a lot of folks, too. They'll come into our drop-in center where they can take a shower. We'll wash their clothes for them. We will feed them. They can sleep um, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Now, I wish we could stay open later, but we're not licensed. We can't. So during the day, we make an effort to go pick folks up from the camps, bring them here so they can take care of all that. And then, unfortunately, we have to bring them home. We also have an emergency shelter where we have three beds. And that has been at capacity since we opened it on September 1st, 2019. 
and it's short term, but while they're there, we can help work on some of the other things, getting IDs, getting social security cards, because that's one of the things most of us do not have. That's part of the power and control that a perpetrator would have. They would take your ID and your all your documents so that you couldn't get a bank account, you couldn't do a lot of things. You can have your phone, and that's a way to track folks, too, but you just can't have your documents. And then we also work with undocumented folks, foreign nationals that have come here and they don't, they're fleeing abuse, and we're working with them. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different ways we could get referrals from law enforcement. And then, of course, drop in. I, I was sitting in my office on um, University Avenue on Monday, and I could hear, we had our doors open, it was beautiful. I could hear some screaming outside. So I ran outside and sure enough, about a half of a block down was a gal on the sidewalk. Her boyfriend had just kicked her out of her car and it was her pimp. Had kicked her out of her car. She was laying on the sidewalk in an epileptic seizure. And so we were able to help her. And that's why we're on University Avenue. That's why we're here because we see a lot of activity here. So we are always... Um, watchful. We have a lot of friends in a lot of different communities. We are part of the Safe Harbor Network, but we also treat people that are provide services for people that are over 24. Safe Harbor goes um, 18 to 24. And we're trying to implement, move forward sex trafficking in Minnesota to implement what we, what you may have heard or know as the Nordic model, the equality model, we're calling it Safe Harbor for all. So just because someone's 24 doesn't mean or 25 doesn't mean that they don't shouldn't receive services. So we're going to just expand that to all because everybody who experiences sexual exploitation is a victim. Terry, that's a good that's a good transition point. Uh, first of all, for our listeners, we're speaking with Terry Ferliti. She is the CEO of Breaking Free, an organization that helps hundreds of women escape systems of prostitution and exploitation. And sharing a little bit with us today about their important work, and I think exposing a lot of people to some dynamics and some realities that we might not otherwise be aware of. So thank you, Terry, for the time you're spending with us today. Say a little bit about, say a little bit more about some of the public policy advocacy you are, you have been doing. You're talking about uh, making sure that people are not uh, funneled into criminal justice systems, but instead the human services system. What kind of uh, key initiatives is Breaking Free proposing right now? It's a little bit... Um tough right now because we've got a couple of factions out there. We've got a group called Sex Workers that George Soros, who's a billionaire out of California, is funding. And these folks are saying that prostitution is a choice and it is their choice. And then, But very often, they may only have one or two tricks a day and they get to choose who they are. The rest of us, that's not a reality. You're assigned someone and you go and that's it. So these folks are making it a little difficult um, because they're they're saying that uh, prostitution isn't exploitation. So what we're doing, a lot of groups around the country, Cat W, uh, Short Hope International, and some of these other folks, we're working on exploring what we call partial decrim model. So we are going to decriminalize the victims, the the people that have been purchased and had to do the sex acts. We want to fully criminalize the Johns, the the folks that are purchasing sex, and we want to fully criminalize the pimps and the perpetrators that are grooming and recruiting and enslaving our women. So currently, we have a full decrim model in Minnesota. Everybody's arrested. But even though that's what the law says, 
my my friend, my county attorney friends are really not arresting too many women, and the police are not arresting women. So we're, for all intents and purposes, operating under the Nordic model right now. But we need that in writing, and we need it for all victims of sex trafficking, not just folks 18 to 24. So that's what we're pushing right now. And that's an important uh, point for our listeners, Terry, is that basically to conceptualize that a little bit, it it treats those who are exploited uh, in prostitution as victims, and it puts the criminal penalties more on the the, the consumers of human trafficking and sex trafficking and not uh, The the women who are being exploited. Exactly. And that's the demand. So, And then we also work on other things, such as surrogacy laws. Um, many times the folks that are renting wombs are renting the wombs of disenfranchised folks. And that's, like, that's and, a different form of trafficking that people might not realize, right? Absolutely. Like re- reproductive trafficking. That, And you're helping us see the trafficking of vulnerable women, especially in a broader context. So uh, very grateful for this discussion and grateful for the work that you're doing, uh, joining with us at the Minnesota Catholic Conference, working to ban commercial surrogacy. Absolutely. And then also working on the uh, possession of pornographic work involving minors. There is now a fine that folks will be imposed if they are caught with pornographic materials. So it's lots of baby steps to get to some of the big systemic changes. But the most important thing that I would like to note is that we're working collectively as a team in this state. And that's something I have not seen in the last 20 years. Yeah, listeners should know that Minnesota, they might be overwhelmed by the information you're providing, but should know, as you said, Terry, that Minnesota really is a leader in creating good systems and good models and good policy to fight uh, human trafficking. And uh, your leadership is a, definitely a part of that. But uh, we've become such a model here in Minnesota that we've even uh, created a model for federal legislation that Representative Paulson and Senator Klobuchar uh, helped get passed at the federal level based on the Minnesota model. So really some good things, Absolutely. Being, done, good things being done here in Minnesota to fight sex trafficking. Terry, I just want to, one more question for you to unpack a little bit more. We partnered together on legislation related to the connection between pornography and sex trafficking, and that led to pornography being a subject of study in the state human traffic report that the Minnesota Department of Health puts out. And it found that among the law enforcement uh, people working in this field, they said that 40% of the victims they encountered had been involved in the production of pornography. Say a little bit more about that connection between the sex trafficking and the production of pornography, that consumption of pornography is not a victimless uh, crime or a victimless reality. No. There, oh, there, are real, there are real people at the end of that. Oh, there are a lot of real people. And I, I will go with what law enforcement says by the 40% of the production. I would say it's closer to 90% of, the, of us have been filmed at one time or another, but may not have been produced or sent anywhere. So I think law enforcement has a better handle on that than I. But I will tell you, as part of the grooming process, is that usually when a gal is ready to be groomed by the, the pimp, um, there usually involves some sort of a rape or um, gang rape, it could be even, and it will be filmed. It will be filmed for blackmail purposes and whatever they deem it for. And they could be selling it, they could just be sending it out on the internet. Another thing that I experienced in the life was when I was in some of these trap houses, 
there was seldom, seldom was there not pornography being shown all over the house. So when you'd walk into a trap house, or which would be like where other folks that are in prostitution might be hanging out or drug dealers or wherever, someplace off of the grid, um, there was there would be people having sex in the room, not caring whether you're there or not, but always pornography on the TVs. So, yeah, and a lot of times uh, the bottom, the gal that collects the money after while you're turning your trick, because usually the pimp um, will, will post your ad, and then you go with the bottom who's like a supervisor. She may be in the room with you while you're having sex, and it's not to... Uh, make sure that you're safe. It's to collect that money. And she could be filming you. So Mm. there's all kinds of times and opportunities to be filmed. And how they use that in pornography, I don't know. There's not as many studios in Minneapolis as there is in Miami and New York and L.A. for pornography. We do have gals that have made films before that were in the life. And there's always some private studios somewhere. So the quality of the filming would be different, you know, technically, but, um, yeah, pornography is used very, very often. Carrie, you've, uh, we're grateful for you bringing uh, light to some very dark issues, but also showing us the hopeful work that you're doing with Breaking Free. Where can people go to learn more about, uh, you and your organization? Oh, we have so many articles on www.breakingfree.net, and we could sure use some prayers. For, for the staff, for um, all the stakeholders, and for the victims that are still out there. Prayer is the key, and God's got to lead us. We don't know how to do this, but he does. So I just thank you for this opportunity, and I thank you for the folks in Minnesota and your whole listening audience. What makes Minnesota so successful is you. It's your prayers. It's where your heart is. And because of that, we can move forward. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And thank you, Terry Ferlitti, CEO of Breaking Free, for joining us on the Bridge Builder Program today. God bless you. God bless your work. And you can count on our prayers. We'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Your generosity is an expression of your Catholic faith. And when you give through the Catholic Community Foundation of Minnesota, you can be sure it is. That's because the Catholic Community Foundation invests and grants your charitable dollars according to the teachings of the Catholic Church. Have you ever considered a donor-advised fund, endowment, or charitable gift annuity to accomplish your charitable giving? The financial expertise of the Catholic Community Foundation can bring you more than peace of mind. With its faithful stewardship, the Catholic Community Foundation can give you peace of heart, too. Call the friendly gift planning experts at the Catholic Community Foundation of Minnesota to learn how you can experience the joy of Catholic philanthropy. 651-389-0300. That's 651-389-0300. Learn more about Catholic philanthropy with the Catholic Community Foundation by visiting their website at ccf-mn.org.
Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, what have you got for the mailbag today? A couple weeks back, President Trump had held a conference call which included Catholic bishops and other Catholic leaders. And during that call, the bishops focused on the plight of Catholic education due to the COVID pandemic. And there's actually been a fair bit of backlash from those who are upset that the bishops didn't highlight other issues with the president. What was that call? Why did it take place? And why was Catholic education the focus instead of other issues? Well, the call was put together by Catholic leaders and involved bishops. I was on the call as well uh, with the president. There are about five or 600 folks on that call. And the purpose was to talk about Catholic education and the challenges that Catholic education is facing during the COVID crisis, uh, not only the costs related to responding to the public health challenges, but uh, the cost pressures and tuition crises going forward with people on, out of work, unable to pay tuition. Uh, there's often a misconception that private schools are elite institutions with big endowments, and a few of them are, but most are not. Most are uh, ministries that are very economically fragile, uh, that operate in a hand-to-mouth kind of financial way. And but at the same time are doing the the best some of the best work serving the poor, the underprivileged, creating a ladder out of poverty, and that's the message that bishops and other Catholic leaders wanted to bring to the president uh, at that time. And a thank him for the work in allowing uh, PPP loans and other resources being made available to Catholic church entities and the Catholic schools, and also suggest some other things that were needed, such as tuition assistance, uh, especially for low income folks. So the call was in that spirit of it's basically a lobbying call with. 500 people. So just like the, the lobbying work that we do, all sorts of other Catholic advocates do, and, and focusing on specific issues, you can't raise every issue and every call. And, and people in the know and people who work with legislators and public officials uh, on a regular basis know this, that you try to build common ground for common good, for the common good. You build bridges of dialogue, not walls of resentment. Um, uh, and certainly you have challenging conversations, and we have Uh, challenging conversations with some of our friendlier uh, legislators up at the Capitol here, too, on a whole bunch of issues. But some some folks uh, who work for uh, partisan organizations, folks uh, on the left, we'll say, other folks at hetero, we'll call them heterodox Catholic magazines, were stirring the pot on this one and saying, well, how dare they not speak to the president about his supposedly racist uh, immigration policies, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we should be speaking to the president about those things, but there's a time and a place for everything. And uh, the church, and especially the USCCB, has been very, very outspoken about immigration questions, strong disagreement with the president on those. But again, uh, there's a time and a place for certain things, and you've got the president's ear on something that's of critical importance right at this time, and you speak to where you can provide common ground and thank him for when he's done well. We have to thank people when they do the right thing as well. And so there's a bigger dynamic here, and people have to understand, you know, how things work and the importance of not just being prophetic and principled, but also being very pragmatic, too. And that matters uh, when you're having dialogues with public officials. You can't be castigating them all the time if you expect them to do things uh, to assist you on important issues. So there's a there's a quite a push-pull dynamic, and I thought the some of the criticism, not all of it, but some of the criticism was a bit mendacious, especially from people who should know better about how these pieces of legislation work. Folks on the 
left wouldn't presume that the USCCB or bishops should would be uh, castigating President Biden uh, if he were to become president about abortion or other issues at every chance they could get either. So some of this is just uh, partisan posturing uh, that uh, highlighted some of the criticisms. So I hope that helps unpack the issue uh, for our listeners. Wonderful. Thanks. What do you have this week in our bricklayer segment? Something practical people could do to help bridge the gap between faith and uh, public life. Well, it's it's May is traditionally known as the month of Mary, and perhaps you've been able to take advantage of the many uh, prayer opportunities, novenas, whether it's a novena uh, for migrants. Uh, we just talked about uh, the immigration question a little bit and those involved in human trafficking that Justice for Immigrants has put on. There are even groups like Catholic Rural Life putting on their St. Isidore novena. So lots of great prayer opportunities in this month of Mary. But one that we wanted to highlight is a scriptural rosary for justice and peace put together by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops that provides meditations on the luminous mysteries. You can find it easily online with a Google search. Just put in scriptural rosary for justice and peace, and we'll also link it on our podcast page as well. So take advantage of those time to meditate on the luminous mysteries and uh, think about and pray about how we can better see, uh, as Terry Ferlitti helped us do in today's show, the challenges and that sometimes that are often forgotten, especially on the peripheries and the margins of society. That's all the time we have for today on The Bridge Builder. But remember to catch us right here each week at the same time. But if you miss an episode, find us on your favorite podcast app. If you've got a question you want to send to our mailbag, send it to us at show at mncatholic.org. And then tune in to see if we uh, put out your question or respond to your question or concern. Thanks for listening to The Bridge Builder today. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening. God bless your day.